Hi, this is Ananda, President of the Hare Krishna Community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's I-S-K-C-O-N of D-C dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. So it's always um, difficult for me, if not a little terrifying, to speak in front of so many uh, advanced Vaishnavas who are, are much more qualified than I am. So please, I beg, pray for me that I may say something inspiring and uplifting to all of you. Um, so we're going to, um, as Premantungani mentioned, discuss this topic of choices and free, free will. How many of you um, like to exercise your free will? How many of you think that exercising that free will is free? So we're going we're gonna to talk about this and see how, how free is it or what's the cost. So I always like to inject some seed knowledge or transcendental vibration. So I'm going to quote one verse from Bhagavad Gita here to start us off. This is sort of the, gets at the nucleus or the heart of what we're going to talk about with this idea of choices. We like to think we have free will and I'm going to propose that we're not as free as we think we are. Or that that free will comes at a price. So this is Bhagavad Gita, chapter 3, Karma Yoga, text 37. Very famous verse. No, I'm sorry. Um, oh my gosh, I lost my verse. I lost my verse. Well, maybe I'll just have to do it from memory. I always get nervous when I do that. Prakriti kriya manani guna karmani sarvishaha ahankara vihmudhatma kartaham itimanyate. The spirit soul, it's 327. Sorry, I had my numbers big slack sized. The spirit soul, bewildered by the influence of false ego, so that's you, the spirit soul, that's us, bewildered by the influence of the false ego, that's someone else. Sometimes we get the two confused. Important distinction. The spirit soul, bewildered by the influence of false ego, thinks himself the doer of activities that are in actuality carried out by the three modes of material nature. Purport. Two persons, one in Krishna consciousness and the other in material consciousness, working on the same level, may appear to be working on the same platform, but there is a wide gulf of difference in their respective positions. The person in material consciousness is convinced by false ego that he is the doer of everything. He does not know that the mechanism of the body is produced by material nature, which works under the supervision of the Supreme Lord. The materialistic person has no knowledge that ultimately he is under the control of Krishna. The person in false ego takes all credit for doing everything independently, and that is the symptoms of his nescience. Nescience is a word means darkness or ignorance, lack of knowledge. He does not know that this gross and subtle body is the creation of material nature under the order of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and as such, his bodily and mental activities should be engaged in the service of Krishna, in Krishna consciousness. 
The ignorant man forgets that the Supreme Personality of Godhead, known as Hrishikesh, or the master of the senses of the material body, for due to his long misuse of the senses and sense gratification, he is factually bewildered by the false ego, which makes him forget his eternal relationship with Krishna. So, um, I'm going to try to stay on topic because there's two or three different concepts here that are sort of intertwined and interconnected. And, uh, for example, it mentioned here this whole idea of ability. We think we're the doer. That's a whole topic in itself, which I'm going to try not to dwell on. But if we, if the Bhagavad Gita explains, and if we look very closely, ability, intelligence, all these things we take credit for, we don't, they don't belong to us. They're given to us. So, therefore, um, we, don't, we can't really lay claim to the things which are produced as a result of that ability or intelligence. They don't belong to us either, but that's another topic. But this idea of control, of, of uh, being the controller, is, is what we're going to talk about, and specifically in relation to choices. So, um, when we talk about choice, or freedom of choice, mm -hmm. some of the things we need to remember, or consider, is that we think we're, uh, we're the doer. I'm the Lord of all I survey, so I can do what I want to do. But if we look very closely, we're actually uh, constraining ourselves all the day. Freedom, uh, freedom of choice, freedom to do what we want. First of all, you don't give freedom to immature young people. Do you give total freedom to young children? No, you constrict them quite a bit. What they eat, when they sleep, whether they run in the street or not. Most of, many of their activities, if not most, are highly controlled. You could say they have some free will, but they don't, you don't let them exercise it because they don't know yet how to exercise it. As they mature, then you turn over more and more freedom. So in the same way for the living entity. Um, uh, Prabhupada gives a nice example. The government builds universities. The government builds prisons. Does, is anyone forced to go to prison? Is anyone forced to go to university? No. They go by their choice. Some people cho choose, they make certain choices, and they act on those choices, and as a result, they end up in a certain institution. Other people, they want to get educated, they make a choice to control their senses and gain some knowledge, they end up in university, etc. You can't say they were forced to go one or the other. It was by choice. So in this way, we create our destiny. The choices we make create our destiny all the time. Um, on a deeper level, um, we're very much, uh, it's described in Bhagavad Gita, until one is uh, fully saturated or has attained uh, spiritual consciousness, we're uh, controlled by our senses, we're controlled by the, the modes of material nature. And we don't like this idea. One of the root problems, the root diseases a living entity has that keeps us bound up is we think we're the controller. We think, I can do what I want, I can make decisions, I can act however I want. And it's true, to some extent, we can do that. Uh, but, but again, the intelligence, the ability, uh, all those things, the body which we're acting, the mind we're using to make decisions, none of those things we created or brought into existence, they were given to us. Right? We were given this body, we're given some intelligence, we're given some ability. Uh, so again, what we do with those things uh, is can be entangling if we misuse or we make the wrong, the wrong choices. So
So I would propose that freedom, in a, in a true sense, comes from constraint, by constraining ourselves. For example, how many of you drove here today? <laughs> Pretty much everybody, unless you live here. So you have freedom to drive wherever you want in the car. In India, they exercise this freedom much more than in the United States. But generally, you stay on the right lane, and the other cars go in the left lane. And you ex if you exercise that constraint and stay in your lane, and the other driver exercises constraint and stays in their lane, you both get home alive. And you don't have head-on collisions and run into everything. That's just one kind of simple uh, perspective. But how, by exercising some constraint, you have the freedom to continue living without being in an accident. If you constrain what you eat and eat healthy things and don't eat whatever you want whenever you want, then you have the freedom to be healthy and function normally and so forth. We can take that example in many ways, but basically by imposing some constraint on our freedom, it gives us more freedom. The criminally minded person says, I'm free to do whatever they want, and they do that. They do whatever they want, and then they end up in a jailhouse, Prabhupada gives this example, where their freedom is limited. They're told when to sleep, what to eat, when to get up. So by exercising this freedom and doing whatever they want, then their freedom is taken away and they have even less freedom than they did in the beginning. So the, just the, un, um, the, the wanton or unconscious use of this freedom is, uh, leads to uh, losing that freedom or taking it away. Um, and so in this way, this, this verse is speaking of 327 about this being controlled by the modes of the nature, uh, of material nature. Um, it, um, we talk about material nature generally in three, they're mixed, but there's generally three rough groupings, ignorance, passion, and goodness. We've heard of this before. And we can see this in the world, different activities. And how we get controlled by it is how we give in to it. So I brought a little prop here to demonstrate this. If anyone knows me, they know him. Kids are like this, if they can see. So, we turn over this control. We don't like to think we're controlled by anything, but we can be controlled by the material natures. You've probably seen these little devices before. Anyone ever seen one of these? A few of you physics majors? Maybe they use this to teach physics to kids in school. But when I say we're controlled by the material elements, it's a mechanical thing. It's not super sophisticated, but it's very subtle and it can be very deceiving. So I'm going to give you two concepts I want to think about here while, um, and I'll, I'll explain how, where I'm going with this. There's one phrase, a sense of good, right? A sense of good. What, in other words, what do we think is good or pleasurable? I like this, I don't like that. Right? I like mangoes, mangoes are good. I don't like Loki, Lokis aren't so good. So what you think is good or what you think is valuable, that's a sense of good. This is something attractive to me. This is something I want. This is something that will make me happy or give me pleasure. That's a sense of good. Sense of real means that reality which shapes my experience, that thing that I just, I'm forced to endure, maybe it's a good thing, and maybe it's a bad thing, but it's just, have you ever heard the, the phrase, dose of reality, or welcome to reality, or something will happen in your life to kind of wake you up, and you'll say, wow, it's this reality hit me in the face, I wasn't expecting that. You're forced to deal with something, you may not want to deal with it. Now, it may be a good thing, and you're happy to deal with it, you, you know, get a promotion, or, you know, 
get some benediction or win some prize or whatever. Um, but that's a reality, but it may not be a pleasant thing. The point is it's, it's something you can't control. It comes to you from outside and you're just forced to deal with it. So sense of good, sense of real. Does that make sense to everyone? Everyone repeats, sense of good, sense of real. So sense of good is when we want to enjoy something a lot. So if we want to enjoy a little, we come out here. If we want to enjoy a lot, then we, we really get into it. We, we um, invest so much money, we'll, I'll take our time and energy. Sense of real is over here. It's gonna, what happens from the choice we make? Is it a little reaction or a big reaction? So what do we think happens if I pull this out here? I'm really, really into this whatever. Right? So this is a simple little thing. It doesn't, it's got a lot of friction. But if we really, really want to enjoy over here, that equal amount of energy we're putting into that enjoyment, we're going to get a reaction. That's the point. So when we say we're controlled by the modes of nature, if we say, oh, such and such an activity is good, picture in your mind whatever may give you pleasure. It may be something um, good, it may be something entangling. But the point is that if we look at the material energies and say they're going to give me pleasure, this material energy will make me happy. If I have a better car, if I get this kind of car or that kind of car, if I live in this neighborhood, if I just get a salary that's twice what I'm getting now, whatever it is that we put on our checklist to say these things will make me happy, that's pulling the pendulum over this way. Right? And then we're forced to, on the other side, get pulled into that. So, yes, I'll, I'll be happy if I get a promotion, fine. You get a promotion, you're vice president. Now you get all the stress, you can stay up and work late, you can get all the calls when everything goes wrong, the boss will hold you accountable, you won't have weekends, your vacations will be ruined, because you'll have all this pressure of thinking, oh no, I'm going to lose all this big income if I don't perform right. A lot of stress. So you don't think about that, you just think about, oh, I get a big salary. But then with the big salary comes big taxes, big responsibility, big headaches. So it's kind of a crude example. But the point is, the more we seek pleasure in the material world, and the more which modes we seek that pleasure in, if we seek it through intoxication and motor ignorance, if we seek it through making money, uh, or fame, or, or philanthropy in, in the mode of goodness, in the mode of passion, or if, if we want to just be peaceful and gain knowledge and seek it in that way, the reactions will take a different flavor, but there's still a reaction. If the ball comes out here, this one has to move. There's no choice. Right? So if we engage our value system and our energy in this sense of good, we're going to experience the sense of real. And so the question is, what are we going to be controlled by? Because the reaction is going to be there. We can't stop this ball over here. If I move this one and I say, yes, I want something, I'm going to experience something. That's just karma. That's just physics. This isn't like a, a, a mystical thing. It's just a simple law of reaction, action, reaction. The question is, what is this thing over here that I'm going to experience? Is it also going to be material? Is it going to further entangle me? There's a, a nice website that has a lot of um, eco-friendly principles about... Um, basically a carbon neutral footprint. It's called Story of Stuff, and it gives, has this nice little video that shows a person spinning on a, running around a globe. 
that people go out and work very hard so they can make lots of money. And then in Western culture, they're taught that, well, if you're stressed out, then just go shopping and then that'll relieve your anxiety. So then they go shopping and they buy a bunch of stuff. Now they gotta pay for the stuff because the credit card bill came. So then they gotta go back to work to pay off the credit card. Then they get exhausted. And then they're exhausted, they gotta get stress relief. So they go work some more and it creates this uh, cycle. This very, uh, could be a downward spiral. That we seek some relief or sense gratification to relieve our stress of being in the material world. That relief seeking device, whatever it may be, depending on what mode you're in, creates more material entanglement and it's just an endless cycle. So the point is, on this side, when we get that reaction coming back to us, we want that to be spiritual. We want that to be uplifting. We don't want it to be downgrading. So then the choices we make on this side, where we put our energy, what we seek after, where we seek our pleasure, needs to be spiritual. We need to seek it in spiritual activities, spiritual knowledge, devotional service, those things which, when we get a reaction for it, it will be conducive to more spiritual activity. Now, in one sense, it's not fair to say get a reaction because it's not the same as a karmic thing. Devotional service, spiritual activity is very transcendental. There is no reaction per se in the karmic sense. But there is a purificatory, a purifying element to it that our consciousness becomes clear. We understand, as we read here, the difference between the living entity and the false ego. And it's a very, very deep, this ahankara. This ahankara means, the root word means the sense of I'm the doer, the sense of this is me doing this. And actually that's a whole other discussion or class about who's actually the doer. We actually do nothing, we can just desire. And super soul takes care of everything else. But this idea of sense of good and sense and real is very important because the reality, if we don't like the reality we're experiencing, then we need to look at what we value. What's the sense of good? What are those things we're seeking after? that are causing me to experience these things I don't want to experience. Because we can't change those things we're experiencing. They're forced on us from the outside world. But they're forced on us based on the choices we make about what I value, what's good, what's worth doing, what's worth putting my energy into. Where we make those choices, that sets this ball into motion, and then that dictates what we experience. And it's either elevating or degrading. So does this make sense before I continue uninterrupted? What are your thoughts about this? Are these do these concepts, these phrases or concepts, sense of good, sense of real, do they resonate with anyone? Has anyone experienced this, whether it's just a little bit or whether it's this is a this is a very small one, but if I take I don't know if this one will work, but if you have a really good one of these, and you take four of these, then four go the other way. Do you want to experience that? Yes. Um, seems like if you're doing good, though, the reaction will also be good. Yes. So what's the problem? If you're doing good, it depends how you define good. So. Like you make it out as if it's a bad thing when the reaction goes that way. No, it's a bad thing if the choices are bad. So depending on how we define good, 
Yes, you're right. If we make the right choices, I gave the example of the, the government builds a university and they build a prison. People make bad choices, they go to the prison, they blame the government. Well, if you didn't build this place, why did you do this to me? Well, because you made choices that dictate that's where you need to be. Someone, gets a, someone else makes a choice to get educated and get a degree, they go to university, that's a good thing. So the point is that the choices create our destiny. So it's not, I guess there's two answers. It's not, it may not be a bad thing if the choices are good. The question is how do we find goodness? So does goodness mean we get a degree, we, get a, we become a CEO, we make lots of money, we have a nice car, and that that's all good? So yes, if we make the right choices, we'll get all those things. Those things may not still, we may still fall into this trap that we read here about the false ego, thinking we're the doer. And so from a material perspective, what's the problem? I worked hard, I went to school, I got my degree, I'm making lots of money now, so I'm getting all good reaction. And that's true. But we're still being totally controlled by the false ego, thinking we're the doer. So on a material level, there's nothing wrong with that. On a spiritual level, it keeps us entangled in the material energies. And then it forces us, for example, other CEOs are making lots of money and then it comes to turn out, this was a very famous case some years ago about Enron, it came to turn out that the way they were making their money wasn't so legal. So they were getting good reaction from all their choices. They went to school, they learned all the business tricks, they created a huge empire. And then when it, the whole thing unraveled, uh, at least one of them, maybe more, committed suicide because they couldn't tolerate the thought of going to prison or being punished. So their sense of good was money is everything and whatever you do to get the money is fine and they were getting lots of it. But it was materially entangled and so it pulled them down. So if your goal is simply for material enjoyment, then you can make good choices, you can get good reaction and be happy. The question is, are you still being controlled by your false ego or are you being controlled by a transcendental reality that takes you out of that material cycle? Does that help? Not so convincing. It seems like you can't avoid acting like that's just in this world. You have to. You have, right. You can, it's true. What, so, so you cannot avoid acting. We have to act. Right? We have to provide for ourselves. We have to have a place to live. The question is, what's your motive for acting, and are you being controlled by the false ego, thinking I'm the doer, or am I being controlled by a spiritual reality, spiritual instruction, spiritual knowledge, whether we get it from the, the scriptures or from other spiritual practitioners, um, and ultimately uh, Krishna will help from within the heart, the super soul can guide us. If we're acting upon spiritual instruction, then we're transcendental, then these dynamics don't apply then we're not entangled. So the question isn't acting, we're going to act, we're forced to act. The question is who are we going to allow ourselves to be controlled by? Who are we going to allow to dictate what actions we should do, what choices we should make? How do we know what choices? Sometimes it's very clear, sometimes it's not so clear. What should, what should we do? So yeah, that's a good point you make. We have to act. This is Arjuna's dilemma. He didn't want to fight this battle. This is not a good thing. Krishna sort of laughed at him after he told him he was very foolish and gave him a lot of knowledge and basically said, Arjuna, you're a warrior. You're going to fight because that's what warriors do. You think you're going to go meditate in the forest? You'll go to the forest and meditate and then some sage will be attacked and you'll protect him. 
You'll, you're going to fight against evil-minded people. That's just what you do. That's your training. That's your propensity. You're good at it. You like doing it. That's what you're going to do. The idea of not doing it. Is that okay? Does that help a little bit? Any other questions? Yes. Hold on, they're going to bring a mic because they're recording this and they want to capture the question. And I'm likely to forget to repeat it. Oh, no, that one's not. Why is it? Go ahead, I'll repeat the question. Why is it that when we help someone with good intentions, that same person will stab us in the back? I should have specified earlier when we said questions, there should be easy questions. <laughs> so sometimes that happens. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes we do something for someone with good intentions and they don't stab you in the back. So it's not, the, the, how they react isn't... A, always directly connected to, to the action, right? But you can say both are there. Sometimes, yes, people may um, not behave, not reciprocate accordingly. Sometimes they may. Um, but it's interesting because um, there's another verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna describes uh, that we should not be uh, attached to the results of our actions, right? So why they did that, who can say? There are so many motives they may have. So it's a little hard to say, oh, they did it for this reason or that reason. Because if you take, you know, ten situations where that happens, you may get ten different answers as to why they acted. They may think they acted justified. They may think you were wrong. They may think you deserve whatever. We can't speculate on why they did it. But why does it bother us? Because what's important isn't what they're doing out there, it's what's going on in here. I can't control what's going on out there, but I can control what's going on here. So why is it bothering me? If I actually did it with true intentions, selfless, as we're taught to, to serve the Lord selflessly, then we don't care how he reacts, how he responds. I'm doing this for you. Here, I cooked this nice meal for you. Please enjoy. He takes it and throws it away. Does it change the motive by which I did it? It shouldn't. It could. We could become angry and say, okay, that's it. I'm never feeding you again. Because you didn't respond in the way I expected you to because I had some attachment that if I did this nice thing, you would glorify me and be very happy. And so we didn't get that reaction. So, then, so, so that's all about how we respond. As to why they did it, who knows? They may not. They had missed the course on gratitude when they were young and they don't <laughs> understand how they should reciprocate when people do nice things. But the important thing is how do we respond to that? How do we accept that? And, and it can be hard. It can be painful. But it can cause us to go very deep. And in bhakti yoga, in devotional life, at the deepest, deepest stages of bhakti yoga, this is the principle that's taught that we need to learn how to serve completely selflessly. We get pleasure from serving the Lord regardless of how he responds. If he ignores us, if he appreciates it, if he walks the other way. Because if we are only serving, the sun, what do they say, a sunny day, um, a sunny, fr sunny day friend? 
There's kinds of friends that they're your friends when you have some money and you have a good job and everything's nice, but then when it's not, they're not your friends. They don't call you, oh, he ran out of money, he lost his job, we don't need to talk to him anymore. So that's not a relationship with God, that yes, I will worship him as long as he gives me blessings and makes my life happy, then it's very nice. But actually, no, I will worship him because worshiping him gives me pleasure regardless of whether he notices or acknowledges it or not. The very act of doing it gives me pleasure. And if he chooses to reciprocate, that's up to him. This is very, very elevated. It's very difficult to do. But that's the deepest, highest stages of bhakti in terms of our relationship with God. So as we develop that, then we become less affected by how people respond to us. So, yes, good question. Um, Okay, we have one back there, and then we'll do Pollocka. One, two, and then Pollocka. One, okay, go ahead. Mine was more a comment on that last question. So another perspective is, instead of thinking how they're reacting to us, thinking that this might just be our karmic reaction and they're just an instrument delivering whatever we're due because of our past activities. So yep. instead of blaming someone else, we can look into ourselves yeah. and say, yeah. why is this happening to me? Perhaps it's my own fault. Yeah, this is a really, really good point. And this is how devotees are taught to see things, that when somebody, when something happens to us, whether it's you know, a generic thing or whether it's a specific person, it's very personal, that we see them as the agents of our karma. We see them, oh, okay, this thing that's happening, I must deserve it or it wouldn't be happening. And... It's happening to teach me something. So let me not get upset with the instructor who's teaching me something. Let me learn the lesson. Um, so I kind of I call this. Um, I'm looking at you because it addresses. He was addressing your question. Um, I call it bitter medicine. It's like yes, I know I'm supposed to think this way and act this way, but it's not very easy, and it's not always very pleasant. But when you do it, even a little bit, you get a deep sense of okay, I'm, this is a good thing. This helps, and this false ego loses his grip very much. And so then we, we become more peaceful. And so you do that a few times, and then you know it does, the bitterness doesn't necessarily go away, but you know, if I just swallow this bitter medicine, it will be very sweet, and I'll be very happy. And that's what happens. And so then gradually, gradually, we don't taste the, the bitterness. They have this medicine in India called Trishun. You take it for flus, and it's very bitter. And I know some devotees, when they get the flu, they'll just chew on it, and and it's like because they know it'll make me feel better, even though it's so bitter. So we had a question back here. Thank you. Um, to extend the few comments, what you said, when something you're a good person, you try very hard, and then senseless, you lose your family, the whole family, or and. Part of it, like you said, could be karma, but I'm more interested in how one deepens. They're they're in big, they're in deep grief, depression. They go to the hospital. Who knows? It just is downhill. And uh, for those that are brought up with Ram and Krishna and Radha, not so not so challenging. But for Let's say a person that's interested for five years or ten years. 
it's really really difficult and i'm not glossing over the importance of what you said but it you're a good person but it's not real in other words it's true what you said if you could let go and be with krishna but it's not real it's real but not in other words you feel so bad you can't get to the truth so i'm making a distinction between what's real what feels real and the truth feels like crap feels like poo poo so if i'm understanding is that question or is you just comment so if i'm understanding how yes we can come before the deities and say well i'm taking shelter of the supreme lord but inside we're like we're not feeling so happy we're not feeling like we're getting some spiritual benediction because I've just lost everything dear to me. And this was the, the, the purpose the Bhagavad Gita was spoken. So the message of Bhagavad Gita is that one of them is that, so let's just go through that scenario. I lost my whole family through whatever disease or bomb. There's many, a great Acharya in our line, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, his whole family, much, much of his family was passed away. He's the second from the right on that side. Um, his, due to disease, cholera came through his village and wiped out almost the whole village. He lost family members, friends, everybody. So what Bhagavad Gita teaches us is that sounds very traumatic. So one time a reporter, I think it was a reporter, they approached Srila Prabhupada and said, why is the mortality rate in India so high? And Prabhupada said, mortality rate in India is so high? Mortality rate is 100% everywhere in the world. <laughs> Not just India. So, yes, it's a devastating thing to you lose your family, but at the time of death, guess what? You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose everything dear to you. And that's the message of Bhagavad Gita. It can be very, very disturbing and depressing and troublesome if we think we're this body. And if we think that those people are this body, that was the entire message of Bhagavad Gita, that all these thousands of people that are about to die, nobody's dying. Nobody's going anywhere. They're leaving our external vision. They're changing their bodies. And if we're attached to thinking, I'm this, I'm this white American male, that's not my identity. That's just like the color kurta I'm wearing. One day it's a blue kurta, one day it's a white kurta. That's not me. And it, ta- it is scary. It is, it is scary. And that's why we chant the Maha Mantra. We chant the Maha Mantra. We chant Krishna's names. And that puts it, because this is spiritual energy, Krishna's names are spiritual, by chanting them, you're directly associating with the Supreme Lord. And by doing that repeatedly, you actually become conscious of who you are as a spiritual being and who he is as a spiritual being, and that you have an eternal relationship with him, and you can't be cut, killed, drowned, or or burned. So... That's the medicine, and by chanting, it works. It actually works. It helps temporarily. It helps temporarily as long as we chant, so we don't stop chanting, and then it always we'll always be in that state. So, I'm not keeping track. We have he has the microphone. I guess you have rank. Back. Are you able to hear me? Yes. A survey was done uh, maybe about 15, 20 years ago comparing the homeless between California and Calcutta. Hmm. And uh, the homeless in Calcutta were assumably happier. So they went a little deeper and tried to understand what was the difference between the two. And uh, they realized that the homeless in California 
held themselves accountable for the choices that they made. Hmm. So it could be drugs, it could be some greed, whereas the guys in Calcutta blamed it on the government. <laughs> so just going back to what you are basically mentioning, um, if you become the doer, if you take accountability, there is a lot more suffering. If you blame it on somebody else, it looks like the victim is you and uh, the perpetrator is somebody else. So in this case, in Calcutta, the government. I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Well, if you're, if you're attached to the results and you're seeing it that I'm accountable because these things happen, I mean, it's, it's kind of a deep subject matter. Where I thought you were going, and we'll come back to that, is having been to India several times and seeing homeless people that just due to circumstances were born into levels of abject poverty that I had never even been aware of in America. Homelessness in India is much different than homelessness. In, I used to live in California, so I'm familiar with that homelessness. Um, but there's a spiritual consciousness that they understand, that, that there's, a, there's a sense of uh, a fate and this is it, and some of them will change the situation. But because there's a sense in general, not everyone, but in general, that there's more to life than this temporary 100-year lifespan in this body, there's a much deeper consciousness, these external things aren't there. Another example, if you look at mendicant, great saints, we look up mendicants who walk around like the six Goswamis, they're on the altar, there's six of them standing there. All they owned was a bead bag and, and a water pot and a very skimpy loincloth. They were completely homeless. There's a different tree every night, but they were in great ecstasy. So it depends on our level of attachment. So we can blame the government, we can blame ourselves, and yes, the psychologically there may be all these different things, but both are still based on, I'm this body, this is happening to me by some external cause. The reality is you're in this situation because you made choices in the past that put you in this situation. And we have to take that responsibility. We don't like to take that responsibility because we don't like to be at fault for things. We like to be, everything I do is perfect. If everyone just understood that, life would be much better. And there's seven billion people on the planet that that's how they think. I know what I'm doing. I'm doing the best thing. And if everybody understood and just listened to what I tell them I should do, we'd be happy. Um, but that's all based on a false premise of who we are. We're not these material bodies. So, Hare Krishna. Um, I can't control the microphone, Gopi. Yeah, I have a microphone. Yeah. Um, I feel the cost system is real. Yes. Like, I'll take that as a yes. It is. Yes. Uh, so doesn't Krishna say, just do your job and keep your mind on me? Yes. So. That's the best you, choice. Right. That's the best choice we can make, is whatever my responsibility is, I just think of Krishna. Do what I have to do and think of Krishna. That's devotional service. And that breaks us out of this cycle. By serving the Supreme Lord, then we don't get reaction. So is that, that's a nice comment. I don't know if that was... We just have a, a I don't have... I, I, yeah, okay. someone over here has a question after. You go ahead. No, you go ahead. We have a couple minutes. It's not a question. I just want to respond to this lady here who is talking about how hard it is when you've lost everything. And um, we are sentient beings. And so it, it, it is not inappropriate to feel grief when, you, when you are, uh, you've lost folks 
family who have been inspirational for you or like when probably left the planet we were devastated so i just want to firm that we are sentient beings and so grief is a real thing it's temporary and there's learning to be had if we just go through it just we're going to talk more about this next week but i'll just say that to you thank you yeah it's, it's definitely real so go, i just want to say gopi had a follow-up question i didn't want to It's a similar point to Mother Ramburu. Um, I don't think that devotees are immune to feeling emotions and grief and pain and suffering. It's how you choose to, like, if, you know, I was born into Krishna consciousness. It's not that I'm, like, immune to death, meaning experiencing the pain of someone dying or the pain of losing. Um, and I think that's a really important point because you've got you, you 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 just have to filter things through. You just everything brings you back close. It's not that Arjuna didn't cry when his sons got murdered on the on the battlefield. Yeah. Yeah. He grieved. He grieved intensely. And it's not that he didn't change his actions. He still acted. It doesn't mean you don't feel, but you act in relationship to Krishna still. That's I think that's the difference. It's, you see it as Krishna. I, yeah, no, I agree. It's a good point. We're all immune. We have, if we didn't have those emotions, we wouldn't be human. You know, we wouldn't be. So it's a really good point. And we do grieve, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a natural process. Um, the point is, I like that filter example. You filter it through that understanding and that consciousness to know that this grief will, this grief will pass just as the happiness will pass. These things aren't eternal. We have, yeah, two minutes. Do you have something? You have a question, comment. Yeah, I have to make the Disney person. You have to, have to make an announcement. Yeah. Okay. Well, wait for the announcements. We have just a couple minutes, and then we'll make announcements. So, go ahead, Pollika. Yeah. All right. So, going back to Mother Karen's question about you know fear of death and all that. This very interesting thing happened with Shoah Prabhupada and his disciples in Mayapur. Two cobras mm. came into the building, and one they caught and the other got away. So that night, all GBCs, sannyasis, they were very frightened that the cobra was going to come back to get revenge. So the next day, Shoah Prabhupada gives Bhagavatam class. But instead of being heavy, you know, Prabhupada was totally, you know, immune to everything that was happening, totally oblivious. He didn't get heavy with his disciples, but he gave a class on the psychology of death. And he said that it's natural to be fearful of death because die, we don't die, we're spirit souls, but because we relate to the body, we're fearful of changing the body. But he said it's natural. It's a natural grieving. It's a natural concern. Yeah, it's a good point. Did you catch that? It's natural to, to, to grieve and, because it's not, death is natural. Yes. Doesn't matter. I wasn't born as Hare Krishna. So, so but it's not easy for anyone, even for devotees who are born into it. The habits are very deep. Our habit, our deep, deep-seated habit is, I'm this body, and I'm in control. That's a very deep attachment, and even devotees have that. So that's what we're trying to overcome. That's what... 
Well, but we're, the point is, is we're never in control. The illusion is that sometimes we are, but we're never in control. Yeah. Well, yeah. It takes practice, but that's the point: is we we aren't in control. The illusion is we think we are, and that's what that's. I'm glad you raised that point because that's. But that's the the distance. So we have one more, one last question here, and then we have to stop. Go ahead. Um, Hare Krishna, Prabhu. Hare Krishna. Um, you said the point of your action has um has an reaction. Yeah. So I'm just thinking. Well, it's true that our action can turn out to be bad, but can it also turn out to be bad on others? I mean, can the can most of the uh, most of the punishment go on to other people? If if we're if I understand your question, if we do a bad action for the wrong reason, we do something bad, we're the one that gets punished. Other people don't get punished for it. They may suffer as a result of our action, but that suffering sooner or later is going to come back to us. We get punished for it. You can't be punished for what someone else does. They're not going to get punished for what you do. Thank you. That's a good, very good question. Thank you very much. So we'll stop there. If anyone wants to continue, I'll be around for a little while. Um, Shri Prabhupada.